There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to another episode of Titans of Food Service, where we delve deep into the world of food service, having the conversations around innovation, creativity, and empowering stories with the movers and shakers who have made it to the top. I'm your host, Nick Portillo, and today my guest is Jack Crawford. Jack is not just a sales expert. He's a trailblazer who has carved his name in the K-12 arena over the years. With an impressive career spanning through renowned names like Gold Kiss, King's Delight, Pilgrims, and currently... Gold Creek Foods, Jack has not only witnessed the evolution of K-12 sales, but has actively been a driving force behind it. What sets Jack apart is his hands-on experience in the commodity processing side of the industry. He has a true passion for feeding kids and is grateful to be serving over 900,000 students daily. Yes, I said that right, 900,000 students daily. But Jack's influence goes beyond just K-12 sales. He's also taken up the role of industry chair for the School Nutrition Association, a testament to his dedication to the sector's growth and progress. His insights into the strategic and tactical aspects of the industry make him a go-to expert for anyone seeking to understand the intricate dance of K-12 sales. In today's episode, you're in for a treat as Jack shares his wisdom on the tactical steps that make the K-12 industry tick. From navigating the labyrinth of commodity processing to understanding the inner workings of school nutrition, Jack will be our guide through this dynamic landscape. So, whether you're an industry leader, new altogether, or just someone intrigued by the fusion of education and nutrition, you are in the right place. So settle in and get ready to explore the tactical brilliance that underpins the K-12 industry with my esteemed guest, Jack Crawford. Let's go ahead and welcome Jack. All right, Jack, welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Appreciate you taking the time today to join me. Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I know we're going to dive deep into the world of K-12. Looking forward to it. So before we start, I have to to ask, I see in your background there, you look like a big sports fan, a Boston fan. Uh, I see maybe a Seahawks. Uh, yes. Uh, my, uh, my wife is from the Boston area, and uh, I've been a Seahawks fan since 1976, the year they came into the league. Uh, they were a horrible football team. But they had the coolest helmets, the best colors, and they were a team that would be willing to do fake field goals and fake punts because they couldn't compete. Um, and I fell in love with them and uh, have been for 47 years, uh, a diehard Seahawks fan living in Atlanta, Georgia. I've seen the Seahawks play <laughs> twice in Atlanta. I've never been to a home game. That is on my bucket list to go to a, a Seahawks home football game. For sure. Yeah. I, is that the state of, was it, the 12th man? Yes. Something like that? Yes, it is. And uh, I understand it's very a loud. heck of an environment. Yes. Yeah. I do love sports. Um, I love ice hockey is probably my favorite, but I love going to baseball and college football. And especially when you're um, a traveler like uh, I am and many of us in our industry, um, sure. if there is a, a sporting event going on in a town, um, I go. And uh, I've seen some great minor league baseball games. Um I've been to a variety of college football games. It just beats sitting in a hotel room any day of the week. Yeah, absolutely. 
Speaking of our industry and traveling around, how did you get into it? So um, I graduated from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and um, I got a job uh, in Atlanta working for a company called Goldkist. And Goldkist was a agricultural poultry company, and uh, I had a degree in uh, personnel management and got a job in, in HR and worked there for about five years. And then an opportunity came up to move over onto the poultry side. And um, I joined up in that group and was responsible for shipping freight out of uh, one of the plants in Alabama. And so for about two years, I did that. From a geogra- geography point of view, it really helped me kind of learn where places were in the country learned about products, and, and after about two years, I was offered a position to come in and work with the school lunch uh, group more as an administrator, behind-the-scenes type thing. That was in 1997, and it just has evolved from there. Uh, so over the last 27 years, it just went from me being the guy behind the scenes who just did paperwork and did all the administrative and did all that kind of thing to eventually doing food shows and then started doing sales calls and then it just kind of led from there. When you're coming out of the out of uh, University of Tennessee with a degree in personnel management, did you think you were did you think you wanted to be in the food service industry? No. It wasn't even uh, something that was even in the realm. Um, I uh, I envisioned that I would have an HR career and um, wow. and that would be where I would be. Um, after five years of doing that, it just I, I didn't see the same level of excitement that I thought I would experience. And to be given an opportunity to, to move into another area that I knew very little about um, seemed rather appealing. And it just, I, I was fortunate to have a very, very good boss who um, encouraged me. And, um, and I, I remember when um, they hired me to you know, work in the school group, I told my boss at the time, I said, I'm nervous that I'm going to make mistakes. And uh, he said, as long as they don't cost a billion, <laughs> then I'll be all right. Uh, I thought, well, good. I got 999 million to play with. Um, <laughs> it was wonderful to have somebody that was not, that was going to be kind and willing to uh, allow somebody who at the time was 27 years old to make a mistake um, or, or, or kind of not be worried about taking chances or, or you know, slight risks with, a, with the fear that maybe there was going to be a repercussion to come back. Yeah, isn't that nice? It is. You, it, it, it's refreshing when you have the support um, of, your, of your company, of your boss. I think it speaks to the culture yes. of the company that you were with. Yes. And I can remember um, that um, I, I was... I made a mistake early on in that I had received a bid from a state and I just saw the envelope and I just put it to the side. I didn't open it right away. And two weeks later, I opened it and found to my complete horror that the bid had opened two days prior and it was a three-year commitment and um, I blew it. We were out for three years purely because I just didn't open an envelope. And I had to call him to tell him what I had done. To tell you how old it was, he was at a self. He was at a payphone um, <laughs> somewhere out in the Midwest, and 
the wind was howling behind him. So I was catching the wind. And when I told him what I did for 45 seconds, he didn't speak. That's a long time. To That's not, a long time. Yeah, And I knew he was there because I could hear the wind blowing. But he wasn't saying anything. And after 45 seconds, he said, don't ever do this again and hung up. Uh, we never talked about it again after that. The next day, I got a dry eraser board installed in my office. And after that, every envelope that came in immediately got opened. And if it was a bid, the, the bid was written down on that dry eraser board with the due date. And it stayed there until it was completed. So a mistake happened that helped improve me. But boy, that was a, that was a tough phone call to make. Yeah, it sounds like it. And you mentioned getting a bid in an envelope. So that means it must have come in the mail. Is that how it was done it, at this time? It was. Everything was uh, uh, mailed in just regular mail. There was nothing electronically done. Nobody ever sent an email with a bid. Everything had to be just, uh, some of them had to be typed. Um, and I remember doing a bid at one point and we had gotten rid of all the typewriters and our in our building. And so I went to a public library because it's the only place I could find a typewriter. And I sat in this library and just wore that thing out typing it. And uh, it was, uh, and I remember having conversations with some of the schools saying, can you eliminate the function of it being typed? Because um, you're not giving me something that it, it, typewriting is just, it's not, doable as, as much anymore. So mm -hmm. uh, kind of a different thing. Yeah, totally. Uh, how, are, how are bids done now compared to back then? Sounds like maybe one electronically via email or how do you receive them now? Um, most certainly a lot of them are um, emailed to us. Others are um, emailed uh, with a link to a website um, that has, it houses, I assume that it saves the schools tremendous amounts of money in terms of postage that they're not spending, sending out. Um, a lot of them now can be electronically submitted. There are still some that say we need a hard copy and uh, you print it off and you put it in a, a FedEx envelope and, and you send it. There is some benefit to that, in my opinion, in that it, it makes sure that that it is truly a sealed bid, that nobody saw it, um, nobody could see anything that was going on. But um, I also realized that days have changed. And I do remember a school coming out with a bid and saying that they wanted the bid response to be front and back because they were trying to be more paper conscious and be more safe for the environment, that if you didn't do it front and back, then they would they would kick the bid out, but then they wanted 20 copies of the bid submitted, which seemed the most asinine thing. So yeah, I did it front and back. <laughs> I gave them 20 sets of it. So anyway, we don't see much of that kind of uh, silly stuff like we did in the past. When it comes to bids, let's say I want to sell my products into a new school district that I've never sold to before. Mm -hmm. What is the process to get onto that bid? Well, a lot of it is... Um, having contact with them, or at least them knowing who you are. Um, and that usually typically occurs in the fall, that between, say, 1st of September till about maybe the end of November, uh, schools are doing a lot of taste testing. They're seeing product. They're looking at it. 
They're deciding if that's something that would maybe fit their menu. And if it's something that they like um, or they view as a, as a positive, then it's up to them to add it to their bid as an item. So really the whole industry, the fall is really kind of the selling season, for lack of a better word. You're out trying to promote what you've got that's maybe new or something that's been reformulated or whatever that might be with the intent that you're going to see them. And then sometime uh, after Thanksgiving till about mid-February, schools put out um, their various bids in which they are bidding. And you supply pricing for the following school year. And then sometime usually, hopefully, uh, March, April, you find out whether you've won or lost. Um, what has been encouraging is a lot of schools are now going to more multi-year bids, not doing it every year. It'll be a bid for a one year, and then it might have four one-year renewals on top, which allows you, um, if both parties are happy, to keep on going. In the past, there have been many that made it to where there was no fluctuation allowed in the pricing. And that became a heartache for a lot of people because to, to try to imagine what price is going to be five years down the road, that, that's not doable. Yeah. So m- many have gone to more of a consumer price index um, thing so that every year, assuming that they're happy and assuming that the industry member is happy with the school, that a, a price increase or decrease can be negotiated and you don't have to redo the whole bid. Gotcha. So if I, if I heard you correctly, if let's say I wanted to be successful or get my products sold into into schools for the 2024-2025 school year, I yep. need to be looking at the fall of 2023 now to make sure that happens. Uh, I would completely agree with that. Usually the month of August and September are months that really, depending on where the school district is in the country, they really don't have a desire to see anybody because that's their first month of school. Yeah. So if you if you look at everything south of the Mason-Dixon line, everybody starts school first of August. If you get above Maryland, um, a lot of schools up in that area start the day after thing, um, after Labor Day. So in the Northeast, they don't want to see you in September because they're just worried about do they have do they have enough milk? Do they have people? Do they have food? Is everything going okay for me to come in there and try to talk to them? I, I don't want any part of it. Yeah. In the South, it's more like in August. Um, that that's their first month of school. They just want to try to get through the days and not be bothered by us. So you start seeing October, November, December is really when the months that they're starting to evaluate how things are going. And would you say on the whole, across the whole country, that all of the school districts do a very similar type process? Or are there any states that do it much differently? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. There are some that I think are a little bit more aggressive is not the right word, but maybe it's attentive. Maybe they're more attentive to, to industry. Um, the state of Texas is one. It's a massive state. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, uh, one of the things I found quite interesting is that if you took the, all the, the students in the greater Houston area and all the students in the greater Dallas area, and I'm talking about maybe within a 30-mile radius of, of, say, downtown Dallas and downtown Houston. If you took that, those two areas would be the ninth and 10th largest states in the country in terms of student enrollment. Wow. Staggering how big they are. 
Texas does a really good job of having a lot more food shows where directors can come and see items that they can taste test. Some they bring students. Um, that's kind of a mixed bag, in my opinion. Um, some can be great. Some can be, this is just not, uh, this is just a feeding frenzy is what it is. Mm-hmm. There are other states, I think, that, that don't do quite enough. They kind of leave it up to the individual schools to try to figure out what it is that they want to do. I think the thing that is completely eye-opening to anybody who's ever been doing this is how frequently the food service directors talk to each other. The benefit is they are not competing against any other food service director. It's not like they can steal a student Mm -hmm. from the districts that's beside them. That's a good point. So they've got their customers. So... They are so willing to share what works, what doesn't work, who's kind, who isn't, mm-hmm. uh, who's treating them right, who isn't. And it is a, a community that, that they are, it, it's, it's beyond what anybody can quite grasp. So I think a lot of them lean on each other to find out, hey, what are you doing? Is it working? And if not, why is it not working? And it just kind of helped. I don't know. I don't know if I'm making sense what I'm saying, but it no, just becomes a thing that they they all rely on each other in a very positive way. Yeah, I'm actually in a group on Facebook with a bunch of school professionals, and the collaboration and the community. It's not something. There's nothing like it in in food Mm-mm. service and other segments. It's very unique, and it's. I, I wish this was more of the norm, but. K-12 really has done a nice job in this arena. They have. They have. And I, I, I think that there are many times that I will go see a, a school and I'll mention something about another school. And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm aware of what they're doing. And I'm thinking, well, I'm bringing something new to the table. No, they already knew it. So if you look at it from an industry point of view, though, I think many of us in industry are not that forthcoming because there are things that, that I do that that I cannot tell you about today because I don't want my competitor to know what I'm doing mm-hmm. and um, and how that makes me different and unique, whereas the actual individual school districts are sharing what's making, um, you know, what they're doing that's different or unique because so somebody else can kind of copy them. Sure. What would you say the role of distribution is in this whole K-12 equ- uh, equation? Uh, it's extremely vital. It's become much more difficult since 2020. Um, I think a, a lot of things changed in the country um, in terms of how things were done. People and companies started looking at areas to try to improve and, and how to be more monetarily fa- sound. There is no doubt that distribution is crucial for these schools because a lot of them, I mean, if, if you look at, I think there's something like 15,000 schools, school districts in the country, probably, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12,000 of those schools are less than 10,000 students. So these places don't have warehouses um, built. There are are many schools that do have their own facilities, and I think that's a a great benefit to them, and they can kind of control their destiny a little bit more. But many of them are reliant on a, a local distributor. And what we have seen over the last, I'd say, 10 years is really kind of a shrinking of the distributor base. 
that the ones that were doing it before, maybe um, not the, the national distributors, but more the second tier or the more state-driven, have started saying, well, I, schools are just a little bit difficult for me to have to deal with, and I think I'm going to move into another area. That's unfortunate because right. there's 55 million kids in in public schools every year. Somewhere between 27 to 30 million eat every day. That you know, I don't know that McDonald's serves 30 million meals a day. They probably do, but um, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of people that you're feeding. And but I get it that the distributor is there to make money for their employees, for them, for their stockholders, for their company. And sometimes they have to make hard decisions on where they're going to go. And there's no doubt distribution is vitally important. Yeah. 27 to 30 million kids eating a day. That is a gigantic number. It is. Uh, Massive. uh, you're right. Maybe McDonald's does that money, but I don't know of any other food service operation out there that does that many meals in a single day. That's pretty mm-hmm. impressive. I remember seeing that uh, Miami-Dade County, Florida, I think they're either the fourth or fifth largest school behind. Uh, so it's New York City, LA, Chicago. And then I think Clark County, Nevada and Miami-Dade kind of fluctuate. Now, Clark County's Vegas. Right. But Miami-Dade has something like 550 school locations in the wow. county. They have more locations than Wendy's has locations in the state of Florida. So the concept of having somebody be able to, to deliver those 550 locations. Uh, think about Wendy's. I mean, they've got uh, you know a much, much more narrow menu. I mean, they're, they're basically serving the same thing every day. Miami-Dade is not. They are serving something different every day at 550 locations. That is a difficult thing to have to deal with. In in an urban area, dealing with traffic and all that, there's a lot of anxiety and stress, I'm sure, with dealing with that and getting trucks distributing product to the kids that want to eat it. When it comes to these school districts, where do they get the money to purchase all of the food? Is it coming from revenue directly from the students or from the state? How does that work? A lot of it is, um, uh, well, it depends on really the school district. If a school district is relatively in an area that's somewhat affluent, then they're charging the individual school for the meal. Um, in areas where maybe there's a, a maybe a higher level of kids in need, then the schools are getting a lot of their money from um, the U.S. government through entitlement monies. One of the big things that kind of happened is um, right after World War II, the Richard B. Russell Act was passed. Richard Russell was a senator from Georgia, and there were so many men and women who failed their medical, um, physical, uh, military physical to fight in World War II because of poor nutrition. They were just not physically nutrient-dense enough to fight. And so the National School Lunch Program was enacted um, shortly after that to ensure that the children of, of, uh, of the United States are, in theory, nutritionally sound, that if we needed them to fight at the age of 18, that they would be there to do it. And so a lot of the money was set aside to help ensure that kids were being fed a balanced, 
nutritious meal that would allow them to grow and become physically strong. Um, I don't I don't think there's any difference in the world now than it was 75 years ago in that we've got people that don't like us. And um, our military is, I, I don't think there's anybody better. And um, But it's crucial that you've got people that are fit that can that can come in and do the things that that we need to protect us and protect our country and protect our families. So, a lot of the money comes from entitlement money that the government sets aside. A lot of that is based on the number of meals that a that a school serves and what their participation rate is, and then obviously the the economics of where that district is. Yeah, I believe here in California where I live. This last school year, maybe two school years ago, they did a. They announced that all kids now eat free. Yes. I think that they funded maybe all of the meals by kit per kid. Can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, I will admit to you freely that uh, in the past, my thinking was, if you are making a good enough living, then the government shouldn't have to provide your child with a meal. You ought to. I mean, you can't go to a restaurant for lunch today and just say, hey, can you give it to me on the sly? You got to pay for it. And, but the more I thought about it, and and I've had some of my uh, peers say, it's ironic that food or child nutrition is the only thing that we're required to pay for. We don't have to pay for a bus ride. We don't have to pay for books. Don't have to pay for electricity in the school. Uh, We don't have to pay for playground equipment or anything. All that is factored in based on the tax base. So the more I thought about it, I thought, then why are we doing that? I mean, if you're not going to charge me to ride a bus, why would you then charge me $3 to buy a meal? I I don't quite understand that fully. So I I commend the states that have done this. Um, I know California's done it. uh, Colorado just passed it to begin this school year. The unknown is what does that do for participation and for what we need to produce. And I just want to give an example. Let's just say a school has 10,000 students. And in the past, they served 6,000 meals. Well, now every kid is entitled to eat that meal for free. So are they going to go from 6,000 meals to 9,000? Or are they going to go to 8,000? And they don't know. And where it becomes a problem is, is that they say to us, hey, I need 100 cases of product next month. And then we make it, and lo and behold, they needed 150 because more kids are eating. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have that in our numbers. And um, all of a sudden, you start having people having a shortage. And that's when things get a little bit dicey. So I think that's one of the things that many of us in industry struggle with is that every year there seems to be some sort of an adjustment in how many kids are actually eating. And obviously, we want as many of them as they can eat as possible. But it's kind of hard to plan when you're not really sure how many you're going to feed. And, and the directors are in a tough position to have to try to figure that out. And I even had one director tell me, she said, I actually dread the days that it snows. And I said, why? And she said, well, my high school has an open campus. The kids are allowed to leave to go eat off-site. But when it's snowing, they don't want to go out. <laughs> so instead of serving 400 kids... I serve 800, but I wouldn't, but I'm not prepared. I I, I mean, I'm prepared, but 
there are it's a problem to double the number of kids. It is. And then the next day, it's a beautiful day, and every kid wanders off to go eat off-site. So terribly cyclical thing, but that's kind of some of the nuances that they kind of have to battle through. Sure. No, that, that, that definitely makes sense. What about when it comes to commodity processing? What does that process look like? So um, that's part of what I've been doing for almost 27 years is the commodity processing of chicken. I've only done that. I've never done beef or cheese or potatoes or any of the other things. We've got a lot of very talented people in our industry that do each um, type of food. Commodity processing comes about when uh, a school district using some of their entitlement money, and that is money from the government that is given to them for the purchase of a raw school product, a potato, a chicken, um, a turkey, a ground beef, whatever it is. That money is not given to the school that they can just go out and buy it on the open market. It's basically money that the U.S. government is going to purchase for them. So if a school says, hey, uh, I want to get some chicken products and I'd like for Jack and his company to run it, then they would then tell the their state office, we want so many pounds of chicken sent to, to Jack. And when we get it, we then take that raw chicken and make it into a finished product, whatever product is that we make and that they want. We then in turn sell it back to the school, but we don't charge them for the value of the chicken because the chicken never belonged to me. I never owned it. It was bought for by the government. Mm. So the school was paying for the raw chicken with entitlement money and then paying me what they call a fee for service. And it's the fee for the service of converting the raw into a finished product. So I'm charging them for my, my ingredients, my labor, my freight, my profit, my everything, but, but no value of the meat. And, um, and then it allows the school to kind of serve it to their people. The positive about commodity processing is that is um, all product has to be produced in a plant with a USDA uh, AMS grader present. So there is a grader in the, in the building. We are not allowed to run without them in the building that have a formulation of what we say we're going to make. And they, they verify that, if not hourly, then twice an hour, that we are putting in the correct amount of spice, that we're not putting too much breading on it, that we're not putting in potentially an inferior cut of meat. The benefit of that to the, to the school program is that it, it gives them the assurance to know that there is somebody from the government that is kind of looking over my shoulder. I'm not going to do anything illegal, and I'm not going to do anything immoral. I mean, that's, why would I want to do something and ruin a product? But it gives them kind of um, oversight, I guess, for lack of a better word, that, that there is somebody making sure that we are fully cooking the product and that it is frozen when it leaves the freezer, and that it's packed correctly. It's just all these little things that just gives the school maybe some reassurance by having another entity watching us. Sure. No, that makes sense. What about when it comes to, let's say, the poultry category? Are there multiple manufacturers that can be part of commodity processing, or is it just well, one? Well, certainly. No, no, no. There's, uh, there's 
think there's like six or seven total. Um, okay. There's there's about four that deal with um, mainly the, mostly just the chicken. Then there's a couple unique uh, companies that deal with just the the chicken leg, and they produce more um, Asian type. Uh, meals, uh, uh, Asian concepts where it's maybe lightly battered and like a, um, a panko or, um, you know what I'm talking about? The yes. real light, light, uh, breading. Um, and they usually sell them with like a sauce packet or something like that. Now it's open to any uh, company that wants to do it. If they want to process, they do. There are some, um, I don't want to say hurdles, but there's some things they've got to do to meet the compliance with USDA. And USDA has standards that means that you've got an audit, that you you have a defense audit, that you're protecting your plant. You're not going to allow people to get in there and mess around. There's some steps to do, but it's it's not unrealistic. And the USDA has been extremely um, helpful in getting people involved. Hmm. I will just say that uh, school lunch is, is not an easy business to be in just because there are different regulations that you have to adhere to and um, and follow and um, that sometimes can make it a little bit more difficult yeah no for sure what if I'm a manufacturer and I'm not part of the commodity processing process how can I sell my products into k-12 what are some of the qualifications that my products need to have USDA has mandated that all breaded products must be whole grain, or whole grain enriched. So if you're making a biscuit or a bagel, it has to be whole grain enriched. There are some waivers that some schools have gotten. It's hard to make a whole grain biscuit because it just doesn't look like what you're going to get on the open market. Right. We as an industry, I think, have dramatically improved whole grain breadings. Um, I can remember the first breading I ate back in 2003 and I felt like we had dropped the, the chicken patty at the beach because it was so <laughs> sandy and gritty and uh, it's not good. Now, it's you would never know it by looking at it. Um, but there are people that say, well, you know, uh, it's not the same color as what I get at a restaurant. Well, mm-hmm. if you go to the grocery store and grab a loaf of white bread and a loaf of whole grain bread, it, it's going to take you about an eighth of a second to realize there is a dramatic color difference between the two. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're having to deal with. Mm -hmm. USDA has set standards in terms of uh, sodium and fat that are uh, very, very aggressive. And um, that's one of the things that I think we as an industry fight is that we are making a product to meet the USDA guidelines that it is not apples to apples what a, a child can get at 2.30 in the afternoon when he leaves school. Right. So it, it causes some problems, I think, for some of the students to say, you know, I want a bag of potato chips, but they don't taste the same as the bag of potato chips that I have at home, even though it's the same brand. What is the difference? Well, the difference is the one at school is is a lot tighter in the nutritionals because of what USDA requires. And I get it. We're trying to feed kids and uh, we're trying to promote a a nutritious life for them. But it is tough when you see a kid that just says, "Uh, yeah, I know this is the only meal I'm going to get today, but I really don't want to eat it because it doesn't have a whole lot of flavor or taste to it. Um, And that's a disappointment. What about when it comes to price of 
of your products? Is there a certain price point that it must hit or be under typically? No, I don't. I don't. I think each individual school based a lot on their what their economic situation is. They kind of kind of set a threshold. What is unique is that the child nutrition department is a separate entity. They have their own budget, and they are viewed to be a profit center. Now, the positive about that is if they make a profit, the district cannot take the money and use it to go buy or, or to install a brand new football field. They can't. They can't use it. It's it's for child nutrition, but child nutrition is, is expected to make a profit, and so a lot of that comes on the district in terms of how many kids are eating. What does it cost them to employ somebody? There have been a number of, of schools that have told me that the company that does so much of their shipping of products that we all have kind of gotten used to, that uh, starts with an A, that they open up a distribution center in the town and the school has a hard time competing against somebody who's getting 18, 20 bucks an hour. And I think there are some people under the assumption that you just show up and you just serve schools. And uh, it is not. I mean, you're, you're cooking, you're preparing, you're, you're, I mean, it's a physical job. And I'm, I'm most impressed every time that I'm in a kitchen because uh, the, the men and women they just make it easy, they make it look easy. Yeah. And um, I think it's an eye opener to all of us in the industry. I, I try to encourage people is that, hey, um, if the director will take you to a school, go over at 11.30 in the morning and just see what the environment is like with them trying to feed 200 kids in 12 minutes. Yeah. Um, and that is, that'll blow your mind. And uh, I don't think they get enough credit for it. Yeah, for sure. In terms of pricing, I, I think a lot of it too is just what the market is willing to pay. You know, if, if the cost of an apple is 50 cents and that's what everybody's getting and you want a dollar, you can charge a dollar, but may, people may not buy it. So you have to almost kind of figure out what it is that you're going to try to to do. Are you going to try to promote um, a superior product at a superior price? Or are you going to try to offer something else that gives you a little bit of a benefit? Yeah, that makes sense. Price is important, but I, I think there are other things that that really do matter. I feel like in the K-12 space, do you hear this, it's an acronym, CN label. What is mm-hmm. that? Why is that important? Sure. So a CN label is basically where, well, the government wants for a kid to get at least two ounces of meat um, at a lunch. Okay. Uh, okay. And what the CN label does is we as an industry submit our formula to the CN labeling branch of the Food and Nutrition Service of the USDA government, or USDA uh, Department of Agriculture. And they run the numbers to say, yes, this chicken patty, hamburger patty, piece of pizza, whatever it might be, does provide two ounces of meat and a grain credit and half a cup of vegetables or whatever it is that you say you're claiming. And by doing that, if they, and then what USDA does is issues a CN number. It's, a, I think, a six or an eight-digit eight, eight digit number okay. that's assigned to that item code and that manufacturer. And they put that stamp on the actual exterior label. 
what that allows the school director to know is if they buy that product and it's CN labeled, then the U.S. government has verified that this product is compliant to meet whatever standards that the product claims. It allows, because the schools are reviewed and they're audited, and they have to prove that they are providing product to students. Because um, if they don't, what would prevent them from giving a kid, uh, you know, a big bowl of green salad and a couple saltine crackers and never giving them an ounce of protein? There'd be no proof. There's nobody who could get them for it. Sure. Not that they're trying to do that, but the CN label gives them kind of like my comment earlier about having a USDA grader in a plant. It gives them the assurance that there is oversight and that the product that is being claimed has been verified by the U.S. government to meet the claims it has. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and typically, you're going to get that more in a formed item. So you're making a hamburger that's three ounces. You're, you can get a CN label for it. If you're providing a drumstick, chicken drumstick, well, every drumstick weighs differently. And so it's hard to secure a CN label because then you would have to make every product exactly the same weight. And that is not plausible. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Jack, I can just feel your your pride for this, for the K-12 space. Mm -hmm. I just, I love it and your enthusiasm and just your passion for it. It really shines through. Talk to me. I know you're, you're the incoming industry chair for the SNA. What is mm -hmm. SNA and what is your position? Sure. Uh, so the School Nutrition Association is the, uh, the national board or national association of all the child nutrition leaders um, for K-12. There's about 50,000 members um, wow. across the country. It's food service directors, that's cooks, that's managers at the individual schools. It's just everybody that is a part uh, of feeding children. And um, they have an industry advisory committee. I was on it for the last year. And I think what SNA is wanting is they want industry to kind of share the concerns that they're having. What are we encountering? What issues may be something that we are seeing? Supply chain has been something that's been uh, obviously a mess for the last couple of years. A lot of that is kind of being discussed. Things that you would never think about. And I remember hearing a couple of years ago that the pickle people were having problems. They had tons of pickles. They just couldn't get any glass jars to put them in. <laughs> and so they had hundreds of thousands of pounds of pickles in their facility, but they had no way to get it to an individual. So, you know, you think about that. They had the food. They just didn't have the device to get it there. So industry has become sharing that information with SNA that they can pass along. And um, I was elected uh, back in March, and I took over in July, and um, I'm the head of the industry advisory committee as the chair, kind of the liaison between our industry members and the SNA staff. Wow. All right. Yeah. Big, big deal. It, absolutely. Had you been in, involved with the SNA prior to this? Um, no, more uh, at a local state level, maybe. Okay. Um, being part of, of, of maybe a conference where I would maybe speak about some topic. I've done a variety of local places, uh, local meetings that they have. I, I live in Georgia, so I've gone to a couple Georgia meetings where 
I talked to them about some topic. Um, I went one time because they wanted to understand what uh, antibiotic-free meant for, for chickens. What exactly did that mean? And so I talked to them for about 45 minutes about that. That kind of thing is a part of it. I'm, I'm just thrilled to be a part of SNA and and um, and the good thing that they're doing. They they their goal was to feed you know the the 55 million kids that are that are out there every day. And sure. and I think for me, um, and sometimes people say I get maybe a little bit too I don't know. Sentimental is not the right word, but um, if I've had a bad day, as bad as it is. Um, I know that our company um, has fed almost 900,000 students every day that school is in. And so as bad as it can be, how bad can it be to know that we help feed 900,000 students? Mm-hmm. Not, not, not 900,000 people at a Buffalo Wild Wings or a, or a restaurant, 900,000 eight-year-olds. Yeah. And um, that usually changes my mindset as the day ends that how the day can't be that bad. And so I, th- I think that the food service director sees that as well to see um, a student eat something that they've never eaten before and like it. That's, that's powerful stuff. Yeah, it really is. Jack, I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time to come on to the podcast and talk all things K-12. I really enjoyed our conversation and I just feel good leaving out of, out of here. I feel like good. one, I learned a lot and I know there'll be a lot of people listening along that feel the same and I just think you're a genuine person and really and appreciate your passion and enthusiasm for this industry. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and uh, it's, um, I would have never thought that this is where my path would lead me. Uh, somebody asked me what would be my ideal job, and to be honest with you, it was a bullpen catcher for a major league baseball team. Uh, <laughs> you sit out in the bullpen, you tell stories, you catch baseball for about uh, two or three innings, you watch the game, you go travel the world. You never have to throw anybody out. You never have to bat. That would be an outstanding job. But this, uh, I think, feeding nine hundred thousand kids a day, uh, I think that tops it. I I, I agree. Jack, thank you so much.